Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is June the 17th, 2014. This is episode 1369 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I've got a good one for you today. We're going to have uh, a discussion on fishing. I'm going to continue uh, the fishing series that I started several weeks ago. Today we're going to talk about hiring guides and fishing from boats. And really more about boats themselves and some of the features to look for and things like that if you're considering getting a boat. And I mean, why would you do a show on guides and boats together? Well, I don't know about you, but every time I've ever fished with a guide, they've had a boat. And I don't know that I really can give you enough material to make a full show out of either one of them individually. And I really kind of want to talk about the way they mesh together. Like, because I know what happens is people go out and buy a boat and I'm going to go fishing. They go out in a great big lake and they go, okay, what do I do? Uh, and they spend a lot of time hunting and very little time actually fishing and catching fish. So there is a real merger to these two. And I think it'll make sense when I talk about it. And hopefully I'll. I'll make some sense out of some things you might have seen and wondered, well, what the heck does that mean today as well with some anachronisms, anachronisms and abbreviations and things as well. Anyway, before I get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Hey, you know, learning new skills is a great idea. It really is. It's something we all should be doing is trying to add new skills to what we know how to do on a daily basis. Well... One of the great skills you could pick up is learning how to make knives because if you learn how to make knives, you actually learn an awful lot more than just making knives. You learn a lot of skills that translate into other things. Uh, if you learn how to you know, do the fit and finish on handle material, well, you learn how to do fit and finish on a lot of things. But it can be intimidating to think, well, I'm going to make a knife. We can do sit there with an old rasp, an old file, and make a knife out of it. You know, you can do that. Some people make really nice knives out of, like, old files and stuff. They even go to, like, old antique shops and buy, like, junk-busted old files just for the steel. But you don't have to start there. You can start with a kit and teach yourself and work your way up as far as you want to go. They also have great Kydex and Kydex kits. Check them out today, knifekits.com. Uh, next up today is Harvest Eating, Chef Keith Snow, my buddy. I love Chef Keith, man. He is uh, He's just a really great guy. He's a prepper and a chef. I mean, that's thats something you don't find a lot of. Man, if you don't think cooking's a, a survival skill, you've never lived on MREs for very long. He's also got some really cool uh, products, especially his seasonings. And I just found this out. I was over at his store ordering some stuff. Usually I don't order much from Keith because he sends me stuff just to, to hook me up and take care of me. Uh, but... I needed some seasonings, and I didn't want to just try to always take advantage of the relationship we have. Um, and I was there, and I figured out something I didn't know. He's put together a TSP Special Spice Master Pack, which is my favorites. Low and slow barbecue, grilled chicken, Montana steak, and northern Italian. Um, it has uh, Each pack has four uh, full-size 20-ounce jars. Uh, so the four the big containers, man. Check it out, the TSP Special Spice Master Pack. You'll find it shopping at HarvestEating.com. While you're there, check out his, his, his blog posts, his recipes, his videos, his podcasts. He's just an awesome guy. He'll teach you how to cook all that great stuff that I talk about growing all the time and how to cook seasonally and locally. Next up, are you a member of the TSP Member Support Brigade? If so, thank you. If not, you know you don't have to be. It's not that huge a deal. But, man, I'd like you to consider it if you've never considered becoming an MSP member before. You know, the thing is, if you're buying stuff, like spices, 
Uh, if you're buying stuff like things from Knife Kits, you're going to get discounts from those, those two sponsors I just talked about. You're going to get discounts from like 38 other companies, by the way. You'll get $150 worth of free ebooks the day you sign up. You'll get some content that's available nowhere else, and you'll help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, any of those professions, I do give you a discount. To thank you for your service, just email me and email me at jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line in one or two sentences is all I need. Tell me about your service, and I'll email you back. And again, this is for prior service and active duty, not just retired and active duty like some people do. If you've done the job, I want to thank you, and I give you a discount on an already great product. Um, on that note, I, I still recommend you guys to please whitelist me if you want to hear back from me. I do get some bounces from certain email programs. Verizon seems to be the one that's like doing it the most right now. Um, I can't think of your name now. I was going to say your name, but you'll know who you are. You're in New Jersey. You're in New Jersey. You sent me an email about leaving New Jersey. I responded to you. You sent me another email about leaving New Jersey. I responded to that one. Both of them bounced. You need to put me in your white list, or you need to contact Verizon and ask them why the hell they won't let me email you. Uh, what was it, Dave or John or whatever, in New Jersey. He wants to leave New Jersey, but it's going to get a bug-out location instead. Considering Pennsylvania, you, you need to contact Verizon. I can't email you. It just bounces. All right. Uh, with that, let's get into the uh, the year that is the episode. See, guys, I really respond to individuals. I do. And I, it really frustrates me when I try to help people that I can't. Anyway, the year that was the episode... Um, I've got kind of a an interesting one for you today that leads to a twisted current situation that I'm actually going to play the YouTube video uh, uh, for you because it's almost unbelievable when you hear it. Um, so we're in 1369 on tspwiki.com. The awesome Alex Shrugged has put this together for us like he does all our history segments. And it says, we be, it's the Hundred Years' War, Part 2, a Fabian War. We begin another 20 years of war between England and France with the Caroline War. Caroline referring to Latin Carlosus, meaning Charles. King Charles the Wise of France has issued a summons to Edward the Black Prince. See, this is why, even though we called him a wise yesterday, if you're summoning the Black Prince, you're not very smart from what I know of the Black Prince. Anyway, to present himself before the king in Paris, the Black Prince sees this as a thin excuse to restart the war, which it certainly was. This will be a war of attrition. King King Charles will use a Fabian strategy to avoid direct engagement. The Black Prince and later his, later his brother John of Gaunt will, encounter, will counter the French tactic with a hit-and-run strategy called Chevauche, or Horse Charge. It uses raiding parties to punish the enemy and force him into battle by humiliating him. Um, for the record, this is also the year when the French begin building the Bastille in Paris, Currently, it will be a fort to defend eastern Paris, but years later, it will be converted into the infamous prison. Here's my take by Alex Shrug. This is, I mean, I would have never linked this stuff together. George Washington was known as the American Fabius for leading the British all over the countryside in the British attempt to get Washington to engage in a stand-up fight. Those who know what the Fabian strategy is may cringe at the idea that Washington was using this strategy as, as such an ill-fated uh, name. In fact, the Fabian Society has only been a passing connection with the Fabian Society. The Fabian Strategy only has a passing connection with the Fabian Society. The Fabian Society was formed in 1884 with the purpose of wearing down society, beating them up bit by bit until they accept true socialism. I just call that government, by the way. Um, whether we like it or not, 
uh, recently one Fabian socialist, Virginia Ironside, to be seen in British TV religious discussion, giving her reasons why every British mother should wish to smother their own children in the crib if the children are handicapped. The, ch the clergywoman moderating the discussion is suitably shocked. A link to the video is provided below. I'm going to play that for you because it's almost unbelievable. I want to talk about this a little bit first, though. Here's the issue. This I know enough about the Hundred Years' War to know this doesn't work that great for France. It certainly doesn't work as well as it does for Washington and his other generals. In fact, it was actually General Nathaniel Green, if I remember my history right, from those school days that had the most effective attack and runaway strategy in the Revolutionary War for the Americans throughout the southern United States and Carolinas especially. Um, that's a guy that actually came from private to general in a single move. Um, pretty amazing guy. And one of the only people to serve uh, as a general through the entire uh, Revolutionary War. I think him and Washington were the only two that did so. But there's a reason that strategy worked better for them than it will for France. Um You, in, in this situation, you had this, this American revolutionary force that was fighting for control of an area that they did not have control of. So they weren't a stationary target. They, when they were, there was no, there was no, like, hangout, right? They were on the move and stayed on the move for pretty much the whole war. So this stick and move strategy and wear out the British worked, and also the British, are here from way over there, right? Crossing the English Channel, it's not that tough. Crossing the Atlantic Ocean in the 1700s or at this time, the, you know, the 1300s, it would have been really, really tough, right? So the, the strategy didn't work as well for the French as it did for Washington. But um, on that note, that's, there's two strategies at play here, and that one is that, that kind of stick-and-move strategy, but the counter-strategy was actually the same thing. Right, and that's the other reason it didn't work as well for the French. The the English didn't go at the the French the way they went after the Americans in the 1700s with full garrisons. All they went with this this stick and move of their own, and then the French, being stuck in France, were attacked and tormented and taunted. Anyway, that makes me think another Monty Python. I shall taunt you further, right? Remember that? But it was the French on that side of things. Uh, he's already got one. Most of you that are of my age or older probably know what that is, too. Anyway, um, uh, no more happiness. Let me play you this, uh, this sick lady. And uh, after that, I'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up with a little discussion on her twisted nature and what that means for us right now that people think this way. And... Uh, Then we'll move on to something much happier. We'll talk about fishing and guides and boats. If I were a mother, if I were a mother of a, a suffering child, I would be the first to want—I mean, a deeply suffering child—I would be the first to want to put a pillow oh, over its face. Doctor Peter um, Evans, as is I from would with a, you know any suffering thing. And I think the difference is that my uh, uh, feeling of, of horror, suffering, is much greater than my feeling of. Uh, getting rid of a couple of cells because suffering can go on for years. Oh. I'm sorry, I was just about to introduce another guest there, but that was a that's a pretty horrifying thing what? to say that you would put a pillow over. Of course, I would. If it was child. a child I really loved who is in agony, I, I think any good mother would. That's going to cause some some shock amongst people. I, uh, I know. I don't know any mother who who <laughs> wouldn't say that if if this was. There was nothing else that could be done. 
and it was just came not to true. That's d Do you think well, that mothers would agree with you? I think a lot would. Maybe not any, but not a lot. Okay, I can't decide whether, because I don't know the full context of the discussion, whether this woman is a sick bitch or an effing sick effing bitch that's effing crazy, that's effing nuts and should be effing buried in the ground and then, like, dogs should pee on her grave until her body rots into the soil and she becomes something useful. I don't know if she's just, you know, a sick bitch or she's that bad. And here's what I mean. I don't know the context. Uh, Alex says it's, you know, handicapped children. All I heard was suffering, suffering, suffering. I can see, I don't agree, but I can see where somebody would make the case that somebody in great suffering with no hope of recovery, I'm talking about physical anguish, you might look at euthanasia. But a child can't, man, you're sick if you're even thinking that way about a kid, though, a baby. They can't choose that for themselves. And there's almost inconceivable that you're in a position where, no, where, where physical pain can't be relieved. Uh, and it's this type of thought that leads us to a point where people start... The, the number of people that you want to help by killing them just keeps getting... The pool gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is where the science of eugenics came from that led to the Holocaust. And it didn't start in Germany. It started right here in America. And we were actually further along with eugenics when Hitler came to power than Germany was. All right? So that puts that in perspective. Um, and then if it's, if, see, I didn't hear the whole thing. I only just a little segment. So if, if she, when she says suffering, if she means handicapped, developmentally challenged, children with, with mental retardation or Down syndrome, then I kind of feel like we should hook her up to a horse and drag her through glass until she is uh, no more. Um, because those children aren't suffering. And it's, it, it's a sick, demented society that refers to someone who's different as suffering. And it, it, that is the thinking that led to the Holocaust. started out with, well, let's just sterilize them so they don't reproduce. And then it's, oh, they're a burden on society, and oh, we need to get rid of at least these ones, and then it gets these ones and these ones. But I'll tell you what, those of you that think socialism's okay, this is where socialism always goes. It always ends up there. It always will end up there. And there's no place that socialism can ever end up taken to its natural conclusion other than killing people. Because some people are not going to want to participate against their will and they're going to fight back and we'll jail them and when the jail gets too full, we'll kill them. And when it comes to taking from everybody to redistribute to everybody, sooner or later there's not enough to feed everybody so the people that can't be forced to work, we got to get rid of them. This is in the history of socialism. It's always ended up there. Every single time and it always will. And when you see someone like this speak that way and you think, oh my God, how can she say that? She's only saying what they really believe. And that's what we need to understand. The people that think government is the answer think that government has the right to make all decisions, including ending your life. And they're just as happy to convince your mother to put a pillow over your face as to throw you in a gas chamber. Either way, they get what you want. They want you out of the way. I'm going to stop. 
And we're going to have a good discussion going forward. I'm going to put this one away. I mean, I, I, I really want to get on an airplane right now, fly over to England, find this lady, and just cold cock punch her in the face. I know that violates the non-aggression principle. I wouldn't actually do that. But when I hear someone talk about, if my child was like that, I would be the first person to smother them with a pillow. I kind of want to go, hey, do you have a pillow? <laughs> do you have a pillow? Could we talk for a minute? Yeah. Anyway, we'll start out with uh, this series. Now, I kind of took a break for it. Had some other, oh, wait. Before we do this, I got to tell you some of the things I messed up yesterday. Screwed up. Completely screwed up two things. One, yesterday, you might have listened to the show. You heard all that interview with Josiah, and then you got to the about 60 minutes in, and you're supposed to hear the Monday show, and it was like the Monday show from like before. It was like a rerun. What the hell? I don't know how I did that. I don't know how I messed that up. I, I, to this, to this moment, I can't figure it out, but I fixed it like two hours later. So yesterday's show, if you have it like set to automatically download or you're one of the people that download it right away, you may need to delete it and re-download the new version of it. If you're using the iTunes podcast app, it should have fixed it by itself. Um, Stitcher and things like that, I don't know. You'll have to check. But, uh, if you want to hear yesterday's full show, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, pull 1368. Up and either hit play or download, and you'll get the right version. The other thing is, when Joe was on, he talked about this really cool video that we did for Permaethos, and uh, showing a day in the life of Permaethos. I was supposed to put a link there. You can just go to permaethos.com. It's the first post on the on the site, uh, but there will be a link in today's show notes, and I'll probably feature a post about it here as well today on TSP at some point. So there you go. Those are my two screws for yesterday. Two in a row right after each other, so we all mess up. Anyway, let's start talking about fishing in boats and hiring guides. I'm going to start with guides. And again, I think it's because fishing lakes, when I did the lake fishing uh, one, I and this is why I'm not going to talk a ton about techniques and things like that today, because I already talked about the techniques and like five different species that are my favorite to target in lakes and points and all that stuff in the lake episode, which you can go back and listen to. And if you click on any of the fishing shows in the series – And you look in the tags at the bottom, you'll see fishing series. If you click that, it'll pull them all up. Um, but, you know, when you do get on a lake, as I was talking about in that other episode, it's like a desert of water. Um, there's certain things we can, you know, learn, like outcroppings of rocks and points and structures and things like that. And it's all about structure with lakes. It's all about structures and depths. And structure is what creates different depths. A structure is not always a big brush pile or something. It may be a drop-off, which is just a change in depth, creating an edge. But when we look at that lake, we don't really see the structure very well, unless we have some of the stuff I'm going to talk about today, like a depth finder slash fish finder type technology. But even then, what are we really looking at? It takes a while to get good with the electronics to where you know when you see a drop-off, well, is it muddy or rocky? That actually matters. When you find a hump, is it a... Is it a muddy hump? Is it a soft, muddy, anaerobic, smoochy, gross hump? Or is it a rocky shoal? They're going to hold different types of fish, if any at all. And overall, most lakes, when you start throwing a boat on them, you're usually talking about pretty big lakes. Now, if it's a three or four acre pond, you can figure a lot of stuff out really, really fast about where fish are on a lake that size or smaller. You get down a half acre, two acres, somewhere in that range, and it gets a lot easier to figure things out. Um, but when you get on a lake and it's you know, some smaller big lakes are 7,500 acres, uh, some of the lakes that we fish on here are 45,000 acres, some are 65,000 acres, 65,000 acre lake. That's 101 square miles. 
And a lake like that will have thousands of miles of shoreline because it doesn't go straight. It goes up and down and back and undulates. There's just so much to try to figure out on a lake like that. And to me, if you're going to be fishing a lake frequently, and I could define frequently as a couple, three times a month or more, and it makes a lot of sense to hire a guy a few times at different times of the year to learn that lake. And it will shortcut your learning a bunch. And I'll tell you what, it will pay for itself. And I do not just mean in total fish caught. I mean direct financially pay for itself. If you start running a boat around a big lake, and you're going to get there at any time frame at all that makes sense, so you're, you're pushing that motor a bit, a little, little past the, the baseline cruise speed. And especially if you're running motors like 75 horsepower and up, it will shock you how fast that fuel bill adds up. And you'll burn a lot of gas really, really quick on four or five trips, especially if you have no idea. You're just trying to figure everything out on the lake. You don't know where anything is. You don't know where the structure is. You're using the fishing reports as best you can, like I talked before and all. But, I mean, you'll burn up hundreds of dollars in a day. So an average guided trip is going to cost $250 to $350 on most lakes for a half-day trip, which is usually plenty of time. And in two trips, you're going to spend that in gas. The guide won't because he knows exactly where he's going, how to get there, etc. But when you're running around aimlessly trying to figure stuff out, you're going to burn the fuel, and you're going to burn a lot of it. So if we just said it was five trips running around aimlessly to one guided trip to break even, I'll tell you what, a guide in one trip will teach you more than you learn on five in your own, unless you're really, really experienced and really know what you're looking for. And really, really experienced with targeting specific fish and know a lot about that species. So for most of us, on a brand new lake, hiring a guide really works, especially if we're not bass fishermen. See, bass fishermen have a little bit of an attitude sometimes, I think, about being a little bit uh, elitist, I think. You know, the largemouth bass fisherman, this bass boat, and it's $40,000 worth of lures and stuff, and it's the ultimate game fish and all. It's really one of the easiest fish in the world to catch. It really is. I mean... It, it, there's there's a, a few different patterns they go into, and if you can find weed lines and shorelines and rocky structures, you can catch bass. I mean, it, that's why there's so many tournaments everywhere. That's why people go to lakes they've never been to and, and catch lots of fish, because the patterns are very similar one place to another. And it's funny to watch the guys that are really good at it get into a lake where things are different, um, the bass fishermen. And just get their butt kicked and go, I don't understand. And like Joe Poole's a, a great little lake like that. It's like a 8,000 acre lake here near Grand Prairie, Texas. We fished a lot for catfish and crappie and, and uh, sand bass and things like that. And you see they have these little bass tournaments out there. And all the bass dudes come out in their bass boats. And this lake is just funky. It's got steep drop-offs. There's deeper water where you don't think it is. There's, there's mud where you think it should be rock. There's rock where you think it should be mud. Um, when the weed lines do hit the coves, they completely mat over really, really fast. Uh, it's a very clear lake. It's this small shad lake. It's it's different than most lakes you fish for largemouth bass. And it's it's funny you watch these guys and you know they're good bass fishermen and they take a long time to figure that lake out. Um, and you think I'm picking on them? I'm not. I'm using it as an analogy. For most other species, that's what it's like every time you go to a new lake. It really is. And I know the bass fishermen, the guys are mad at me right now, and they're going to nitpick every little thing I don't say perfect from this point on. But I'm really not picking on you guys. I'm just saying, you know it's true. Summertime, bass relate to weed lines. Go back in coves and pitch a jig and pig, and you can pull bass out of most coves, especially against stumps. 
I mean, it, it, there's just certain things that are consistent there. And as long as you can find those areas at those times, you can probably produce largemouth bass. It's true of other fish. Crappie have certain ways they relate. Sand bass have certain ways they relate. Catfish have certain ways they relate. But it's a little harder sometimes to identify those spots on a lake you've never been before. A guide knows where all of them are. A guide's your shortcut. Now, I think the biggest thing you need to know with guides is how to talk to them. To get what you want. Most guides are accustomed to this kind of crap. Yeah, I want to take a fishing trip. Okay, when? Wednesday the 18th next month. I'm booked that day. Well, I need to go that day. Well, um, I, I'm booked that day. Uh, can you take another date? No. Uh, can I refer you to somebody? No, I want you. That's the one kind of client they get. And it's like, I'm sorry, I'm booked. I can't cancel it to take you. And the person's completely inflexible. And that's not that big a deal because you probably don't want that client anyway. But the other one is the client that does this. Uh, yeah, whatever. And they, they show up and they've got two kids with them or something or a woman that doesn't really want to be there or two buddies that do want to be there or whatever. They show up and they're getting ready to go out. And the guy says, okay, well, we should do pretty good today. And the guy says, well, I hope so. We're, we plan to fish fry tomorrow. And a good guy will tell you, well, you might want to plan on stopping at Albertsons or Kroger on the way home then because we're going fish and we're not going catching. We might do well, we might not, but I can't guarantee you that. So they're used to people that want instant gratification. Most people that hire fishing guides are doing it because they don't really know how to fish. They're on vacation a lot of times. Or they have a friend coming in that wants to go fishing, and they know they can't take them somewhere where they're going to do a good job. So they want a kind of a guaranteed result, which is something you don't really get when you fish. You don't get guaranteed results. You get whatever you get. There's things you can do to improve it, and guides know what they're doing because they make their living doing it. But this is what they're accustomed to as a person that wants to come, get in the boat, be driven around, told a few different things about the lake, put your line in there, and start pulling fish out. That's, that's what they usually think they're getting because it's what they usually get. The other client they usually get is the professional uh, guidee, right? This is the guy that whenever he goes somewhere, finds the best guide he can, goes out, he's a great client. But all he's looking to do is just relax and fish, and he doesn't really care where everything's at. It's, you know, you can tell me a little bit about it, but just let's shoot the shit like two guys have known each other their whole lives and fish. Those guys are great clients. They're usually either one or two only, and they don't usually drag people that don't want to go with them because they want the relaxation. So if they're on vacation with their wives and the wife doesn't want to go fishing, he hands her uh, the, the, the shopping card and says, go out and you shop, and I'm going to fish this morning. We'll meet for lunch and have the rest of the day together. And, and that guy is pretty easy to take care of. But, again, he just wants to go out, catch fish, and come in. If you're hiring a guide based on what I'm talking about today and you want to fish lakes, then what you're actually saying is you're wanting a guide to teach you to fish versus to have you catch fish. This is not the normal thing, and it, it sends up a red flag for guides because this is what the guide's thinking if you don't explain yourself well enough. I'm going to take this guy out to one or two spots that are active right now that are good places to fish today. They won't be good fishing, you know, if they're hit every single day, and they're not going to be good fishing all year long. And what they're thinking is, every time I come to this spot, this guy's going to be here sitting there bouncing around in his boat, dragging lines across of it, and this is a spot that I rely on in certain patterns so that I can bring clients in here to catch fish, and I don't want some guy yelling and waving at me and saying, hey, they're biting, or hey, they're not biting, where am I going to go next every time I show up? 
So that's that's the the place where they get worried. And guys with certain little tricks they're using, like crappie guys are notorious for this. They'll build the the brush piles that I talked about in my last one, sometimes regular brush piles, but a lot of times they'll build it out of PVC pipe where you can't see it on a depth finder. PVC pipe and water have the same density um, uh, to, to sonar, so when you're over a big structure of PVC pipes, you don't see it on a radar. It just looks like water. It's kind of invisible to fish finder technology. So they'll build these big tree things and sink them in the middle of a, a cove or something so they know crappie will relate to it. And uh, they're really particular about hiding those spots. So that guy's going to tell you either no GPS in the boat or he's not going to take you to his best spots. Because he's, he, he's, he's especially on a lake with a, a lot of competing guides, that's his little go-to. He knows, he, and he's set that up. right? There might be some catfishermen that have certain spots that they chum, and maybe they got another guide and two of them together work on it. They keep a couple spots chummed up. And, and they're not going to want to give up those spots if somebody thinks it's going to be coming there and hovering on it. So you have to be clear when you're telling a guy, I want to learn the lake and I want to be able to fish this lake. And if you say, and what I mean by that is, you know, I'm going to be fishing four or five times a month. Um, I know that I'm not going to learn the whole lake from you today. I know that, I, that, you know, we're fishing in the summer and patterns are different fall, winter, and spring. I'm looking to hire you this time. And if everything goes well, I'm looking to hire you four or five more times. Uh, I really want to learn the lake, and I don't just want to learn spots. I want to learn how to find the fish out here. I want to learn the big structures, the stuff that everybody already knows that's been fishing here their whole life. Um, you know, and I, I'm looking to, to, to hire you, and I'm more concerned with learning about the patterns in this lake and the fish that are available in this lake than I am about exactly how many we put in the boat or you know how many we catch today. Now, that usually opens a guide up because he knows, number one, you're not some competing guide that's playing dirty, because this happens too. One guide decides he's going to take up a fishing in a new lake, or he's just moved her for whatever, for one reason, hires every guide he can get to take him out on the lake, learns the whole lake, and next thing you know, he opens up shows guide service. And guides don't, they're not good marketers. If you're a fishing guide, you should have more clients than you know what to do with if you're any good. And if you are ever lacking for clients, you should be able to shake a tree and some should fall out. But guides are generally not good marketers. Okay, And because they're not good marketers, we're going to come in the next thing is how to find them in the first place. If they were better at marketing, you'd be able to find them better. Um, <laughs> but because they're not good marketers, they, they look at it as a very competitive business. I've seen guides do things like one guy I know dumped sugar in another guy's boat gas tank while it was sitting in a, in a, on a trailer in a park. I know another guy that he was like, he thought he wasn't that bad because he would take a stem puller, if you know what that is, and pull the stems out of people's tires on their trailer and their trucks while they were sitting in the parking lot. If he felt that somebody was fishing in his area, there's, there's this weird thing that I've not seen in any other business other than fishing guides. And most guides don't do it. Most guides don't do it, but they're all, they, guides that, that are in the business, that know enough other guys, know that some do this kind of stupid shit. And they're always on the lookout for who the next guy that's going to be an idiot is because one idiot can ruin a market. One idiot can come onto a lake and come in there and throw out a stupid lowball price. He's going to be out of business in a year, but he can ruin a season. So understanding these things and understanding when, the, when you're talking to a guide, hey, I'm going to be here, you know, I just like to fish, I got a job, You know, I mean, I remember a couple times I've told guys when I'm talking to them, they're like, well, you know, you seem like you could do this or that. I'm like, dude, I don't want to be a fishing guide. I just want to fish. 
you never get to finish, right? And that puts them at ease. So I wouldn't lead with that, but I'm just saying, if you ever get into that discussion, just, just tell them flat out, man, that's not what I want to do. I just want to be able to fish this lake and know this lake. And I want to be able to find fish on other lakes, too. So if you can show me how you find fish here when you don't just know a spot to go to. Um, finding them, I have to tell you, the best way I've ever found guides has been through forums. And whatever I want to fish for, I'll try to find a forum that covers that area, South Florida, Texas, whatever. And I'll go on, on that forum. Usually most fishing boards have, like, you know, catfish, you know, whatever. And I'll just ask. I'm thinking about uh, hiring someone in this area uh, to take me out for stripers. Who's the best guy for me to get in touch with? Or could you give me a couple good guys to get in touch with? And when somebody says, well, it's so-and-so, usually I respond back, really, that's great, man, thank you. Have you ever fished with them? Well, no, but they always have, a, you know, and they might have a good reputation. It might be well-deserved. But when I hear from people who say, well, I fish with this guy, and this guy's great, I'll get in touch with that guy either through his website or a PM on his forum. I'll talk to him. I'll explain what I'm looking for. Because sometimes I'm looking for what we're talking about today, right? Because it's somewhere where I'm going to be in the area again a lot. And sometimes, like, if I'm hiring a guy to fish Pine Island Sound in South Florida while I'm at Sanibel, I don't give a rip about him teaching me how to fish. I'm that guy that's the good client for that guy. I just want to chill I want you to tell me where, you know, when they say, well, what do you want to fish for? I'm like, whatever's doing best right now. Well, what, what, what kind do you want to fish? Spin fish or fly? Whatever is the easiest to catch fish with right now. I just want to go fish. And if we don't catch a lot, I don't care. And they just relax. So make sure you're explaining what you need in those situations. But finding the guide, and because you might find that a guy with the best reputation for putting lots of fish in the boat is closed. If you're looking for a teacher, he's like, I don't really do that. You know, a lot of them will tell you, and that's great because at least you know. I don't really do that, man. I just take people out fishing, and uh, you know, I have my spots I hit, and I don't let you. And if someone will tell you flat out, I don't let you in the boat with a GPS. If I catch you marking something with a GPS, I will throw it in the water. Some of them are that blunt, and some of them might be like, well, yeah, you know what? I've been fishing this lake a long time. Uh, I'm happy to show you around. You want to do repeat business? I'll cut you a deal if you want to book a few trips right now, and uh, or at least take the first one, see if you like it. And, and those guides a lot of times become good friends of yours. Uh, some of my really good friends that are fishing guides, that's how I, they started out. I was their client. They taught me what they knew, and some of those guys, you know, would call you up and say, "Hey, I, I'm just going to go out and fish today. I'm not taking clients or anything. You want to go? <laughs> it's a good friend to have, man." Uh, one of my best friends in the world was a guy named Hal Dodd that passed away a couple years ago, and that's exactly how he and I were. So my, my best guess, estimate for finding guides really is forums that's and email lists and things like that. Um, you can try things like Chamber of Commerce website for a city or town you're going to be near and all, but remember, those are just guys that are advertising, and that doesn't mean that they're good. It just means that they advertise. At least they do that, though. Um, don't be swayed by pictures of lots of fish on a guide's website. They all do it because that's what you want to see. But the truth is they take pictures when they catch fish. And if you go out and fish for years, you're going to have lots of times when you've caught fish. And lots of times you caught a lot of fish. And you're going to put up all those pictures. And it looks like every time anybody goes out to catch a lot of fish. And the guides do that because they have to, because they need to bring business in, and that's what you want to see. But the truth is, no guide always catches lots of fish with his clients. Sometimes it's because his clients can't fish, and sometimes it's just because they have a bad day. All right. I've also found most guides that I've ever hired, when we have a really crappy day, 
end up saying, hey, you know what? Are you going to be in the area for a long time? You know, are, you, are you from the area? Are you going to be here for a while? You're on vacation? And you know, if I say, yeah, they'll say, um, I might not have anybody on Thursday. If you want, we go out for a few hours on Thursday. And they'll just take you for free, or they'll cut you a half price on a future trip or something like that. I don't ever ask for it, but most of the time that we've had bad days, it's been offered. And those are guys that I really try to help out in the future and refer people to. Um, I also want to say this. I think you should always tip your guide. And I know some people say, well, most guides work for themselves. They don't work for a company. They should have priced it in the trip or whatever. If you tip your guide and you call him and you want to go out next month, he's going to figure out how to work with you. That's number one. Number two, it says something about your value of what he's doing for you. And guides usually do not price themselves where they're worth because they have to compete for dollars with other people. And most guides are worth easily an extra 20 to 50 bucks. And I look at it this way. You're already into it for a few hundred dollars. What's an extra 20? You know, and if it's two guys going out together and both of you pony up 15, 20 bucks, throw 30 or 40 bucks extra at the guy, you've made a friend. And people say, well, why should I tip if we have a bad day? If he worked his ass off for you and did everything he could for you to try to make you have a good day and showed you a good time, you should tip him. If he was a shitty guide and you would never go out with him again and all you wanted by the end of the day was to get the hell off the boat, then you shouldn't tip. So when I say always, I mean you should always tip your guide if they did their job as a guide. If they are a shitty guide, or I've even had one guy where I finally said, you know what, can we just go home? Because the guy was just an asshole. So, and I'll tell you what, I'm not wasting my time. And I paid him his full rate, but I did not tip him. And there's only one time. I've only ever had one really bad guide that, that fit that description. Um, but you should always tip your guide. And that's really kind of my whole thing on, on guides. And if you, if you take that approach, I think that you'll find no matter where you are or what you're fishing for, you'll have a good experience. Because what's going to happen is if you have that rational, you know, reasonable conversation with your guide before you hire him, most guides aren't starving to death. They do want business. They do worry about, you know, whether I'm going to book a trip tomorrow or not. But most will not lie to you. They don't want an unhappy client at all, especially today with the internet and the, the boards where they get most of their business anymore. Is most guys I've talked to, they get more business. They say it's from the internet, but when you start asking them, well, I got a website. Well, yeah, well, how do people find your website? Oh, it's a forum. And that's, that really is where most of them get their business. And in that instance, if you have one or two, you know, unhappy clients that feel like they got ripped off, And they start tearing your ass, unless you've got 40 or 50 that stand up and say, no, this guy's awesome, these guys, these guys have the problem, it can ruin things for you. So they don't want an unhappy client. So when you're asking for a type of trip, they just don't do. They'll say, I don't do that. This is what I do. And if you'd like to do this, I'm happy to take you. But if you don't want to do this, then I think you should find somebody else. And that's better for both of you. And that happens if you have, and it's not, it, don't make this like, like you're interviewing somebody for, you know, military service or something where you're really hard on them. Just a basic, casual, hey, look, this is what I'm really looking for. Just a casual day out, you know, or I'm bringing kids and I need somebody that can deal with kids. I'm bringing my son to fish with us and I want you to take the fish off the hook. I want you to deal with him so I can fish and he can be with dad, right? 
or I'm bringing my kid and I'm going to do everything for him. Which generally you're not getting the most value out of your guide if you do that. But some guides don't really like to take kids. And some guides you go, kids, and the guide goes, oh, um, how old? And when you're like 14, they're like, oh, great, that's another limit in the boat. And sometimes when you go four, they're like, you know, I'll take you, but that's really not, you know, the type of fishing we do, it's not really great for a four-year-old. You know, or, hey, four-year-olds will love this. You need to let them know what your expectations are so that they can manage your expectations with reality. Because they know the reality, but they don't know your expectations. So if you give them the two together, they'll merge them together. Now I kind of want to move on to talking about boats because... If you're going to learn that lake and you're going to do what the guide's going to do out there, you're probably going to have to get in a boat. And, uh, again, the biggest reason I hire guides in my local market is to learn lakes so that I can fish them. All right, moving on to boats, and, and just I want to talk today not really about a lot of gadgets and things, just some of the basics and some of my thoughts on boats and just kind of helping you figure out, like, do you really want a boat? Um, and if you do, what kind of boat do you want and what should you look for and what should you consider and when you're looking at things and see things like SC and WT, what the hell does it mean? Um, let's start out with my basic thoughts on, on boats are this. I don't generally like to buy used boats, but I'll do it. And, and I'll tell you why. I, I have seen enough go on with boats that I see one of two things happen when a person wants to sell a boat. Uh, actually, three different things that I see happen when people want to sell a boat. Uh, the number one one is that they bought the boat, they have a big old boat payment, the boat's not that old, it's still damn near new, and they owe so much dadgone money on it that you would be able to buy a new boat for almost the same price. And it would come with a warranty and straight out of the gate and you could ask for, you know, things to be changed or what have you. And those, that's really hard for that person to sell that boat. And the problem isn't that they won't come down on price much, it's just they can't. You know, these guys go out and they buy a $28,000 brand new boat and they have it for four years and they still owe $24,500 on it. And, and they're not even willing to spend a thousand bucks to get rid of it. They want to get exactly what they owe or a little bit more. Um, I've seen that with people, you know, you go, well, this boat's only worked about $18,000. And the guy's like, well, I owe 24 on it. Well, that's not my problem. And so that's the one type of used boat. The other type of used boat is the one that actually makes sense to buy. This is a boat. The guy's had it for a while. Maybe he paid cash for it, whatever. He doesn't owe a lot of money on it or he doesn't owe no money on it at all. So he's not hampered with that. He's just gotten to the point where he doesn't fish much anymore. The damn boat's been sitting in the garage. He's taking up space. His old lady's yelling at him. He just needs to get rid of the boat. That you usually can get a good deal on. That's the boat you're looking for. The third boat is the most common boat for sale that's in an affordable price range. And that's the boat the guy's had for a long time. It's starting to give him problems. And he wants a new boat. And he knows they ain't going to give him crap for a trade-in, so he figures he'll private sell it, walk into the dealership with that wad of cash, plunk it down on a down payment, and buy a new boat. You're buying somebody else's problem most of the time. And let me add to that an old saying about boats in general that anybody that's ever owned one will understand a boat is a floating hole until into which you throw money. So when you look at boats from that angle, there's a, there's 
like the only way I know of to not spend that much money with boating is to buy like a, a cheap used flat bottom or V bottom John boat that we'll get to in a minute that you can buy for a couple thousand dollars or less, put a small outboard on it, and and just never get too fancy with it. And I actually one time had a little old 14 foot flat bottom John that I decked out pretty dead gone awesome, and I didn't put that much money into it. I'll put a, a link to a video of that today. It's on my personal YouTube channel. I ain't uploaded nothing to forever. Um, but uh, you can check that out. It's a, it's a pretty cool little thing I've done. And I've seen people customize John boats, and maybe we could have a redneck engineering John boat show someday and all the things that you can do with them because you can make them pretty cool. But they'll never really be what you're looking for in the end because they only have so much weight capacity, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but they are expensive. They're expensive to maintain. When something breaks and you don't know how to fix it, they're expensive to get worked on, and you got to wait for them to get fixed. Because your boat always breaks at high seas, and it never breaks in the middle of winter when you ain't using it and don't care, so everybody else has got their boat there too. Um, parts are expensive. Replacing a motor is very expensive. There's a lot of times the reason the guy sells the boat with the motor that's off and just gets it working just good enough to dump it on you is because he can almost buy a new boat for the price of the daggone motor buying the motor separately. Motors are expensive. Uh, marine mechanics are not like auto mechanics. There's not as many of them. They're more specialized. They command a better wage, and they generally can find a job. It's it's just an odd market in some ways. Things go wrong with marine equipment that don't go wrong with other equipment that cost more money to fix, and when you buy a used boat, you're buying something that has problems almost every time. It don't matter if you're buying it from a dealership that it says they did a 114-point check or whatever, the motor's got hours on it, the guy that sold it, sold it for a reason, and unless it's that guy that just got into bad with money and had to dump it, and somehow is not so upside down that the boat's affordable, unless it's that, you're probably buying somebody else's problem. And I'll still do it for the right boat. With the right boat and the right deal, I'll still do it. But in general, when I'm looking at to buying a boat, it's something that I'm looking at... Maybe I need to buy a new new boat. That means I'm not going out and buying a $50,000 boat because I'm not going to have a payment with it. That means I'm looking at things like the Bass Tracker line or something like that. Okay? You, know, you can get a decent boat from them for seven dollars to $8,000. New. So there's, there is, and, and then you've got a brand new motor, zero hours on it, and you know all the maintenance that gets done to it, and you make sure it gets done right, and what have you. But that doesn't mean I won't do it. I'm just kind of pointing that out. That's always a risk. And people say it's the same with cars. It's not the same with cars. It's not the same with cars. I can fix 80% of what goes wrong with a car, even a brand new one. And there's a million places I can take that car to get fixed, and people will compete for my business. And there's a computer that I can plug in that car tell me if there's anything wrong with it. Um, boats don't work that way, especially when you're buying somebody's 1977 boat with a motor that he put on it in 1996. Very important thing, when you go to buy a boat, a lot of times guys just meet, write a check, hand it over, whatever. Do not buy a boat without the titles. If the guy says you can just get a title by going to the state, then you go to the title and get the state. The, the boat needs a title and the motor needs a title. All right. And a lot of times a guy will have a boat title but not a motor title or a motor title and not a boat title. Uh, the motor title is an issue, but the boat title is a real issue because you can't get your paperwork from the state to put your sticker on your boat so, the, so the, the, the catfish sheriff will leave you alone when you're riding around in the water. So make sure that's there, too. I didn't have that in my notes, but that's come up a lot, um, especially these guys with John boats and stuff like that. A lot of times it was my uncles who sold it to my daddy, and my daddy gave it to me, and I don't know where the hell it is. 
Um, and well, yeah, you can register it. Well, why has it not been registered since 1996? Well, I just never got around to it. Well, I need the title. And when they say it's easy to get, then you say, well, you go get it. Trust me. Do not, don't go there. It's it, it's a it's a problem that just becomes a compounding problem. Um, let's talk a little bit about different kinds of fishing boats, but I want to talk about some some terminology that you see spec'd out in boats a lot of times, and I find a lot of people have no idea what the hell it means. When you see a lot of boats spec'd out, you'll see things like SC, T, WT, and CC. And this is all about the console. All right? Um, SC is a side console. That's all it means. So when you look at the boat where the guy sits that drives with the, the wheel, right, or the controls, the little place for him to sit is off to one side, and you can get through to the front and back of the boat to the other side. Okay? A WT is a walkthrough, and that means that there's a little place where the guy sits, and there's probably a place that looks like that where a passenger sits on the other side, whichever side's which, and then there's an opening in the middle that you can walk through to get to the front and the back. That's what WT means. Um, if you see CC, that's a center console configuration, which means that where the guy drives the boat is in the center. You can get through on both sides, left and right, port and starboard. Which side's port and what side's starboard as you look forward? Port is to the left. You can remember that because left and port both have four letters. You won't forget now. All right, so that's a center console. And then there's a T, transom. And that means there is no console. The whole boat's open, and when you drive, you drive like the old school you see in the cartoon with Elmer Fudd where he's back there with a hand tiller on the motor. Or there are some other boats that have some ways you can control your boat without using a hand tiller, and they would still be considered transom boats. In other words, they have little sticks or something set up for you to control your boat left and right and fast and slow and backwards and forwards. All right, so those those terms I find really screw with people because they see a model SC, a model WT. What the hell's the difference? Well, one's you know one's a, a side console and one's a walkthrough. That's that's all that is. Um, when I look at fishing boats, I generally I'm taking out the fishing skis here. Uh, the jet boats and stuff like that. I just want to talk a little bit about the most common boats that I see used for fishing and my thoughts on them. Um, the number one one I see a lot of guys start out with is a flat bottom or a V-hole John boat. And more flat bottoms than V-holes, and that may not be the best idea. Uh, usually what people say is, well, that flat bottom gets in that real shallow water up in those coves and stuff like that. And Let me just put it this way. There's a place where water's skinny enough that you don't need to be. Um, and most V-hole John boats will float, float just no problem at all on about a foot of water uh, or, or, or shallower. So it, it's not, unless you're going up creeks or something like that, creek channels or something, it, it's not that huge a deal. And if you're running that shallow with a motor, sooner or later you're going to find a spot that's shallower than you thought, and you're going to hit something, you're going to jack something up. So I don't really know that it's that big a deal. But what I found with the John boats, the smaller boats, you know, you can put in by hand and stuff like that. A V-hole is just more stable. It's just a more stable boat. It handles rougher water better and things like that. And I had a flat bottom John, and I loved it. Um, but what you'll find about these boats is they're difficult to find a good deal on used because everybody wants one. And everybody sees them as cheap, and everybody sees videos like mine and thinks, I'm going to go buy me one of these boats for $200 bucks and turn it into a bass boat for $1,100 total out of pocket or whatever. And um, they, they hold their value, and they're not that expensive brand new. So I will buy a used John boat in a heartbeat. 
Um, as long as I'm not spending a lot of money on the motor or I'm getting my motor some way else, because as long as that boat doesn't leak and it's in good shape and it ain't busted up, there's not a lot to go wrong with it. That's another reason they hold their value. They they don't break. They don't fall apart. They're they're either welded or riveted, you know, aluminum. They 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 just stay together. Now your bigger heavy duty Johns, like your Tracker Johns, right? The Tracker Boat Company, the big like the Grizzlies and stuff like that. Those boats are badass. Those boats are tough. They're not cheap, but they cost less than you know your your true bass boats or your uh, you know your fiberglass hulls and things like that. And they have a place. You know, they're a great river boat. They're a great utility boat that you can do both for fishing and duck hunting. Those are awesome. But those are kind of different than a purpose-built fishing boat in, in a lot of situations to me. The next boat that I see a lot of people use as a fishing boat is your typical bass boat. And I'm kind of putting these in the order uh, of what I see them being used by people, most likely to be used, not my particular order of preference. But the typical bass boat. And I think everybody out there that's ever looked at boats knows what a bass boat is. You know, you've got your big front casting deck. Usually, their side, uh, you know, uh, side console configuration. Uh, so you've got your one side. You've got all your rod racks and stuff like that. And they're a good boat. Um, they're really designed for a guy that heavily uses a trolling motor and and hits edges and hits the the shorelines and along docks and stuff like that because that's where bass guys fish. So they usually run pretty shallow. Um, a lot of times, they're, I, I feel a lot of times, anyway, personally, that they're over-motored. You know, they have these, these boats and then 250 horsepower Merc cruisers on them, and you know, get up and get it, and, you know, all that does is burn gas. And a lot of times, that big motor only buys you a couple miles per hour in top end, and it really burns a lot more gas at the cruising speeds you're going to spend most of your time at. I've heard the argument, if I'm out there and a storm kicks up, I want to be able to get back in, and I guess I sort of get that, but you're on a lake with this thing. You're not out at ocean seas. Um, it's a lot of weight, and it's a lot of expense when it needs to be replaced. I find most boats do just fine with 50 to 75 horsepower motors, and they are gas sippers compared to when you get up to you know, 125, 150s, 250s, 225s, uh, what have you. Uh, what I like about bass boats is the ergonomics of them. Even if you're not a bass fisherman, they're a pretty good multi-purpose, multi-species boat. Um, they have so much storage, so well thought out, because bass guys usually have so much tackle uh, that they just have that utility. They usually have a pretty big front deck. And to me, that makes the bass boat a nice compromise. The guy that wants to fish most of the time, but the occasionally his wife wants to go out and sun. Right, and so she wants like a fishing ski or a you know a, a bow a bow rider or something like that, a typical you know yuppie boat that you hang out and you don't fish from. Well, that deck is just fine for sunning on. It really is. Um, so to me, that's the you know if you're going to go out all the time and do that, then I understand these other boats. But if the boat is mostly going to be used for fishing and you've got somebody in the family that wants that kind of recreational attitude with it most of them are fine for tubing they're fine for they'll do just fine for skiing they got plenty of power um they're easy to get in and out of you know usually there's a good step ladder off the back side of them so they're they're fine is that i i would rather have a bass boat and use it like a fishing ski than actually have a fishing ski because the bass boat is purpose-built for fishing if that makes sense um then the next one is the all-around v-hole and it may be the best boat 
for the multi-species fishermen, especially the multi-species fishermen that goes to different environments. It might be in deep, rough water one day uh, and, and more calm water the next day and have you. Uh, you know, the all-around all V-hole. There was a boat that you would call it, kind of like a modified V-hole. It was halfway between a true V-hole and like a bass boat model uh, that Tracker made. And it was called the V-18 Allfish. And they do not make that boat anymore. And that was my dream boat. Uh -huh. It was uh, a boat that was so well thought out for the multi-species fishermen. And I just, I don't know why it didn't, it didn't catch on. But if you go to Tracker's website, And if you look at multi-species deep V boats, and if you look at um, the uh, the V18 uh, combo, that's the closest thing that they still have to that boat. Uh, that boat now is selling for like $25,000, and they're not getting $25,000 of my money for that boat. Uh, but it's pretty close to what the, the V18 Allfish was, and that boat sold back in the day that I remember it for like $16,000. $15,000, $16,000. I don't know when they stopped making that, but that was a great boat. And, uh, again, for the person especially, and it seems like this configuration is more popular in northern waters, deep, cold water northern lakes that get more chop. A flat-bottom boat seems to have more of a problem uh, dealing with it. And they're just a great boat for the guy when you say, what do you fish for? And he says, anything that bites. The next boat is the center console. And it's my personal favorite. Um, and you can have a boat that has a center console that's not what I'm talking about in, in reality. A typical center console designed, purpose-built fishing boat. Uh, and you can find these things from, from really skinny water running bay boats Uh, to great big deep water blue fishing boats and, and plenty of options that put you on normal lakes. The reason I like the center console, though, is I've fished with a lot of guides, saltwater and freshwater. The majority of guides are using it for a reason. If I'm out fishing on a center console boat and I've got three or four people in the boat, there's a lot of room for people to be able to maneuver and cast and work their line and what have you without getting in each other's way. Usually there's a pretty good front deck. Usually there's a pretty good standing back deck. And it's, a, it's a V design or modified v, v design in the whole, unless it's a skinny bay running boat. And that is a really stable platform. It has some depth to it. The decks are not usually straight up, you know, where you, you're, you take one step the wrong way, you're in the drink. And I'm not real worried about that, being on a bass boat or anything like that. But if I'm going to have kids on it, It's usually just a boat. It's a little. You're a little less worried about the kid falling in, and since you're wor less worried about him, you nag him less, so he has a better time. By the way, you can have whatever thoughts you want about whether you should wear a life jacket or not on a boat. I don't even have a statement about that. I'll tell you, I usually don't, uh, unless I'm in rough water and alone. Uh, I just usually don't. But kids, put a life jacket on them. Hell, put two on them. Um, it's just a smart thing to do. In most places, there's law either 12 or under or 16 or under, depending on where you are, that kids have to wear a life vest on a boat. Um, and I think it's a good law. I don't think maybe we should have a law in the first place, but as laws go, it's a pretty good one. It probably saves lives. Uh, but the center console is my choice for an all-around fishing boat uh, because it's like that V-hole all-around design, but it's just more purpose-built 
and as a guy that fishes southern waters, it just seems more applicable uh, to things like stripers and white bass that, that I go after, though I would take either one. I really would. And you can get a kind of an all-around V-hole with a center console if you, if you want to. Um, and then the, the, the deck or the pontoon boats. I see a lot of people with these, and most of them are not happy if they're dedicated fishermen. Um, there's just a lot of issues. There's, you know, kind of linking right to the next thing is anchoring's not a good idea when you're fishing at all times, and there's a couple reasons. One, you've just thrown a big heavy thing down in the water, so you've just screamed, hey, someone's here, and then that boat's sitting there flapping in the water, making noise, because it's tethered to an anchor. If it's really calm, it's not a big deal, but when you got some movement, you can scare fish off with an anchor. Now, if you're anchored somewhere and casting somewhere else, It'll work. Um, but what you usually find with your deck boats and your pontoon boats is you're, unless you're in dead calm water uh, or unless you're somewhere you can tie up to like a, a bridge piling or something like that, you're going to have to anchor. They're very difficult usually to control with a trolling motor and to stay over structures that you're fishing. They're big. They're bulky. They're usually a boat a guy buys with a bunch of kids or a bunch of party goers. And they're great for that. They're wonderful for that. But they generally don't make a great fishing boat. I'm not saying you can't fish off them. I'm just saying they don't make a great fishing boat. They're also a bit intimidating to trailer for a lot of people. They're definitely kind of a, an intimidating thing for a lot of people to back down a ramp uh, and, 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 and get into the water. They're big. They take up a lot of space. And I see a lot of them for sale that have very low hours on them and still look awful because they've sat outside because people just give up on them. So, I don't know. If I want to hang out on a pontoon boat for a couple days, I'll rent one. After, I'll just show up at the dock. It'll be sitting there waiting for me all gassed up. And, you know, I mean, I, I would never use one enough to warrant buying one, but that's me. Um, I also want to talk about trolling motors with your boats. Um, there's... What I would say, there's four main types of trolling motors available. The most common one that you see uh, is a hand tiller, which means you're, you're standing up and you've got you know forward and reverse with your, with your trolling motor, or you're sitting down and you've got that, and you're using your hand, and you have to be where you can touch the motor, and you're using your hands for it. Um, they're affordable. Uh, there's tons of them out there. If one breaks, you can replace it for less than 100 bucks. Uh, they're easy to wire up. You can get them. You can use them for anything from a great big boat to a little bitty John boat, just fine. Um, and they they perform admirably. They work. And every boat, in my opinion, should have a trolling motor for a variety of reasons. I'll get to it in a minute. The next is the foot control motor, and that's probably the second most common among bass fishermen. Let's be honest; it's probably the most common. And there's you know there's a valid reason for it, and that's because your hands are free while your foot does the work. And what I've found with, troll, with the foot control trolling motors is they take some time to get used to and adapt to. Um, the first time you use one, usually it kind of throws you off. But once you get a handle for it, they're really easy to work. Uh, I find that they're a lot more enjoyable to work. If you're up on a front deck with them and you've got the trolling motor mounted in the front and you've got like a pole chair or something where you can sit where you're almost like almost standing but not quite and you can kind of take the weight off your legs whenever you want to, and you're in that environment. That that seems to be the way that they're the most convenient. I personally don't like them. 
I, what I mean by that, though, is I personally, me, if I have my choice, it's not what I want for me. Uh, I'm just a much more touch kind of guy, and I just feel I have a lot more control of the boat with a hand tiller, uh, properly mounted hand tiller, or I'll tell you my favorite one in the world here in a minute. The next one is remote control, which is halfway to my favorite one in the world. Remote controls come all kinds of ways. Now, they've got them where they're designed to sit on, on the butt of a, of a fishing rod. I don't like that idea unless you have multiple remotes because I change rods a lot for different reasons. But they hang on your belt, what have you, and you, from anywhere in the boat, you can control forward, backward, faster, slower, move this way, move that way. They take a little bit of getting used to because if you're standing looking backwards and you want to go forwards, it's in reverse operation. But once you get those in your head, I find it, and maybe it's because I'm old and I'm young enough still, I guess, that even though I'm not a big video game guy, I did play a lot of video games in, in my childhood, and it's kind of like a video game. And I didn't play a lot of video games with my feet, but I played a lot of video games with my thumbs. Uh, and I, I like that. But what I like best are these newer motors they have now. They're remote control. A lot of times they're remote control or foot control or remote control or hand control but they have a GPS built into them. And I think they're the coolest things since sloth spread. I really do. And and probably because of the type of fishing that I like to do. Um, I love to fish for white bass. I like to fish for catfish. I like to fish for a lot of things where you find a structure and you fish over that structure. And what you end up doing when you're using a trolling motor to stay there is you're constantly... Moving the boat back, moving the boat back, moving the boat back. Now, I'd say the, probably the best motor I know of that I've actually used is a Minn Kota iPilot that has this, this functionality to it. What a lot of the guys like, though, is you can save a pattern, a trail, a couple miles long if you want to. So a bass fisherman that always fishes this same shoreline can drive through that shoreline nice and slow where he can cast to every point, every structure, whatever, and save that. And when he comes back to that lake, he can push the button, and the boat will be like having a guide. And it just will take him along that shoreline exactly where he went the last time. And you say multiple trails like that. Since I'm not a bass fisherman, and again, bass fisherman, I'm not putting you down. I just point out the differences sometimes, and your job's easier than mine sometimes. I'll just say that. Uh, I'm kidding. I really am. No. Um, since I don't do a lot of bass fishing, fishing, that's not a huge thing for me. I do do a lot of hell pet trolling for, for white bass, and it, it could be useful for that. But in most boats, I would actually be running the gas motor in really a slow speed, about two, two and a half miles an hour to do that type of trolling. So I really wouldn't be running the trolling motor. Though if I wanted to do it by myself and I wanted to be out there alone, it would be real convenient to, to pattern the troll pathway back and forth and the figure eights at the end of them and just let that boat keep going back and forth. And as long as you had the battery life to do it for a while, man, it, it, it could be useful. What I like, and people are thinking battery, battery, battery right now, these things make your battery last longer because they're better than you are at doing what needs to be done. They don't make mistakes. They use a computer and they stay where they're supposed to be. There's a feature in most of these, and I know the iPilot has, it's called Anchor. So I'm out over a hump and I'm fishing and I'm bouncing slabs for white bass. And I find a spot that I want to hold and I just hit Anchor. And that motor will hold me within a few meters of that spot all day long. And because it's efficient, and because when I hook a fish, 
I haven't lost track of what I'm doing. The wind kicks up to eight miles an hour. By the time I get a fish in, I'm, you know, freaking 40 yards away from the hump, and I got to motor my butt all the way back over there because that doesn't happen. It will make your battery last longer, not less long, if you're doing that type of fishing. And I find it to be really like if I if I'm really thinking about buying a boat right now, and if I buy a boat and it's new, I just want whatever motors in it, get it out of there and give me one of these iPilots. And if I buy a used boat, I'm budgeting to put that motor in it. My buddy Hal Dodd taught me about these things. And when he when he got one for his boat, and again this guy was a professional guide, he said it was like hiring a deckhand to run the motor. It just made his job so much easier. It made it to where he could interact with his customers more. He could help the kids that were on the boat when there were kids on the boat. He could fish some too, throw some throw, throw some of his fish to his customers that wanted a lot of fish to take home. That it was like having a, an employee run the motor for you. And uh, man, that's just awesome. So I really recommend that you consider that if you're if you're gonna you know get a boat that you're gonna spend a lot of time in fishing. All right, now, as I finish up today, I want to talk about things you learn the hard way when you get a boat, and uh, there's some humor involved, but it's all true as well. Uh, number one is don't forget to pull up the anchor, and you will. Sooner or later, you'll take off without pulling up the anchor. I did it once. It didn't really cost me anything other than an anchor. I didn't really jack up the boat or anything, but I had this little bay liner walk through, and we went to leave, and I started driving. I said, the boat's just not... Working right. Unfortunately, I didn't have a big old, you know, like ship style anchor. I had a dumbbell style anchor, a flat bottom anchor, and uh, uh, the boat was just riding really high and it wouldn't plane out. And all of a sudden, it just went boom. It just planed out and took off. And I went, <sighs> and the guy that was with me said, "What?" I, and I'm nailed over to him. I said, "Well, the anchor's gone." We looked back and there's an anchor line just flapping. So sooner or later, that'll probably happen. And it's it's probably worse that you you don't forget to untie if you've tied up somewhere uh, than if you forget the anchor. The anchor usually come loose or the line will snap, but uh, if you're tied up to a tree or something, you can cause other problems. Uh, and the next one is you're going to hit shit. You're just going to. Uh, sooner or later, you're going to hit something. You're going to bust the bottom end of your motor on something, or you're going to run into something. You're going you're gonna to go through a place 18 times, and there were no stumps there, and one showed up today. Uh, the next one is everybody wants to fish with you, but few want to help run your boat. You get find time, tons of people that want to go fishing with you. Uh, you're going to find a lot of people that want to uh, run the trolling motor, though. Uh, they kind of want to use you like a guide. Um, and, you, you know, you, you find yourself doing a lot more work uh, when you're with someone than you'd think you would, unless they're a boat person. You want a good fishing partner, you get a good fishing partner who, who owns and uses a boat and knows how a boat works, and that way they can help you. Um, you know, instead of sit there and hold the boat for you while you back your trailer in and then run around to get the boat and put it on the trailer because they can't do, they can't neither back up the trailer nor, nor put the boat on the trailer or they say they'll try and you look at them and think, no, not with my boat, you won't. Um, the next one is putting boats in and out is just a pain in the ass by yourself. It really is because people are waiting and you're running down to tie the boat and back up to get your truck and park it and it's just a pain in the butt. Um, coming home in the dark is a pain in the ass. You're trying to back the boat into a garage or whatever, and you're tired at the end of the day, and you're thinking to yourself, man, if I would have hired a guy, I'd just come home and go inside, take a shower, and eat. Uh, and you got all kinds of stuff to put away. And it's not saying not to do it. I'm just saying it's something to think about. 
Um, it's, it's something about with how late you stay, too. You know, a lot of times when fish are biting in the evening, but there's still a point where you call it and you get home at, at when it's still light out and you're not totally worn out yet, it's probably a, a good idea to leave then. Uh, the next one is things always will break at the worst possible time. If your motor just decides not to start, it won't do it at the dock. No, it will do it in the middle of the lake. So be prepared. I know this is a survival podcast and I shouldn't have to say that, but you know, have an oar, have a, a, a flare gun, um, have a, a horn. You're supposed to have this stuff anyway. Have a fire extinguisher. A fire on a boat is a problem. Um, but things will, are going to go wrong at the time that, that, that is least preferable to you. And it's going to happen and be prepared for it. Um, your trolling motor actually uh, you, you know, wants to eat your line. It does. It, like, it lives on fishing line. That's what it, it prefers that to electricity. Uh, it wants to eat your line, and sooner or later it will eat your fishing line. And uh, it, it will do a, a really great job of it when it does uh, for the trolling motor, and, and well, really not for the trolling motor and for you. It'll have a bad case of indigestion, but sooner or later your line will end up on, around the trolling motor, and it will probably be at a time that's the worst possible time. Uh, the lines at ramps, boat ramps, get really, really long at times, and they usually are longest when you're trying to take out rather than put in. Uh, so when you want to get home, you know you're going to be in trouble because you stay too late and, and your wife's going to be mad or what have you, or you have to get to the kids' game, that, that line's going to be long. Um, tree branches, when they hit you in the face, hurt. Uh, and they hurt even more when they hit you in the back of the head because you really don't know they're coming then. So if you start fishing coves and creek channels and stuff, sooner or later you're going to hit yourself in the face. The uh, next one is get two bilge pumps. Yeah, get two bilge pumps. Even if they're not both mounted, even if one's like kept in a, in a storage container so you can pop the other one out and stick it in there. Um, boats sink when they fill up with water. And even if they don't sink, they ride low and they wrong, ride wrong. And remember the other thing you learned, that things break at the worst possible time? So when the wind kicks up and you didn't leave or whatever and the boat starts to take water on, it will be when your bilge pump will stop working. It absolutely will be. And it makes a lot of sense to set your bilge pump up with a float switch so when the water gets to a certain height, you don't have to turn your bilge pump on. It just turns itself on and, and keeps your, your water low for you. Um, and then the next one is kind of right up with that is when it rains or the winds get bad, go the hell home. These are all things that you learn when you own your own boat, and you usually learn them all the hard way. I just gave them to you now so you don't have to learn them the hard way for yourself. Now, if you want to see some of these things actually happen, uh, I'm sure I'll be able to find it. I haven't looked it up yet, but I'll put in the show notes today, in addition to my video on customizing my John boat, a video of Jimmy Houston's outtakes where he learned some things the hard way himself. And uh, it's a pretty good little bit, bit of comedy, and you'll see uh, trolling motors eating things and branches hitting people in the head. And uh, and it's a professional guy that fished his whole life and had a camera crew with him to tell him when something's going wrong and what have you. And uh, it's just part of owning a boat. And for all the negative that I maybe have seen to say about boats today, it's actually part of what's fun about them. That, you know, as long as you do things safe and you use your common sense and you don't do things that are dangerous and you make sure you follow certain safety rules and maintenance schedules, you, you end up really enjoying a boat. If I didn't think that, I wouldn't be thinking about getting another one. Um, but do think really long and hard before you go out and spend a lot of money on a boat. Are you going to have the time? Are you going to make the time to use it? Because I'll tell you the number one reason I've seen people get rid of boats that are in good shape, I just don't have the time to fish anymore. I just don't have the time to use it. It just sits here. And I figured I could do something else with the money. So think about that before you go dumping a lot of money into anything, but especially a boat. 
But uh, I, I really think that if you if you want to be a serious boat fisherman, that that it, it makes a lot of sense to do what we started today talking about hiring a guide. Um, this is uh, it, it's something I just I, I can't give you better advice than that when it comes to especially lakes and learning one or two bodies of water really well and having that good conversation with a guide. And this is uh, getting toward wrapping up our series. I have another episode planned, episode six of the th series, called Unconventional Methods. Uh, so the next time I come on and talk about fishing, I'm going to talk about jug fishing, trot lines, bank lines, limb lines, things like that that are, you know, other than just rod and reel fishing that, you know, in some places they're completely legal and other places not so much. But they're really great ways when you're looking at fish that you can harvest in large numbers to, to kind of take fishing more along the trapping theory versus the hunting theory. So if you think about hunting a deer, you go out and you wait for a deer or you stalk a deer, you find a deer you want to shoot and you shoot one deer. But if you're out trapping raccoons, you set out 20, 40, 50 traps in a, tra a trap line. And uh, when you run that trap line, you, you, know, you can get multiple raccoons uh, for fur. And uh, when, you, when you look at things like trot lines and bank lines and jugging, there's usually limitations on how much you can have out at one time. Uh, there are certain laws and regulations that are different in every state. But, you know, you're setting those out and you're letting them work for you like a trap does while you're, you know, hanging out with your wife and enjoying one or two adult beverages and sitting in the sun and maybe going to a restaurant. Who knows? <laughs> But uh, So we'll talk about that one. And I've had a lot of interest, and if it's, if it's really there, I'll add a seventh, one, or a seventh one to this series, which will be all about cooking fish and cooking with fish, uh, which I think a lot of people might enjoy that even aren't going to be big-time fishermen because fish is something we can buy, not just catch. So uh, we'll continue with this series. I think I'll do those two more episodes. I'd like to hear from you, though. Do you do you want the seventh bonus episode? Do you want me to take a, a day and do that cooking fish? And if you do, comment today's show notes or send me an email or what have you. And if the interest is there, I'll add that to it. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
show.